Hello and welcome to the K-League show. The show all about Korea's answer to the Canadian Premier League, uh, which is handy for a reason you'll see in a minute. Usually I'd be here joined by Arwen and Jim, except they're not here. Uh, and uh, well, well, don't worry, they're fine. They'll be back soon in the next episode. Everything will be back to normal. And by normal, I mean the three of us will be starting off talking about Korean football, trying to figure out why things happen, and then invariably talking about movies and other things. However, thank you very much for staying with us so far as we continue our journey. We've already learned a lot, but today is going to be a quantum leap forward in that, as I have the opportunity to sit down and chat uh, with Devon Rowcliffe, who is based in Canada, but spent a year living in South Korea in the early noughties, and has written a book about the experience of following Busan, which was his adopted club all around home and away for an entire year and the book is finished he's had the preview copies it's out in september and that's 2020 just in case you're listening way ahead in the future and uh well i started off by getting him to introduce himself my name is devin rocliffe and uh, i'm from vancouver canada originally but i'm currently living in toronto moved here a few years ago but i've spent several years in both the UK and in South Korea. So with all that travel, why is it that you wrote a book about South Korea and not the UK or Canada? I mean, I studied Asian studies and particularly Asian politics at university. Um, so I was quite keen to go out to Asia after I finished my degree. So I was looking around at various countries. I had considered Japan, but ultimately I, I chose Korea for a bunch of reasons, but um, yeah, the the football out there was definitely a bit of a draw. Unfortunately, the the city I chose to live in, particularly because of the nice climate, Busan wasn't the best for football because uh, the K-League and even the lower divisions tend to be very northwest heavy. And that's natural. That's because most of the people in South Korea live up in Seoul and around that area. I think I was really smitten by the, the football culture in South Korea. And that's what really made me want to write about South Korean football. I think I was only there for a few weeks and I thought, okay, this is, this is a subject that interests me and other people don't know about it outside of South Korea for the most part. Because after all, this is the first book specifically about South Korean football. So I was quite keen to share the stories. There's a lot of unique and unusual stories and it's, a, it's the oldest football league in Asia, actually, the K-League. So I was keen to tell its stories. What was that first game like in South Korea? The first game I went to was a friendly between South Korea and Colombia at Busan Ashid Stadium. So that was a brand new stadium built for the 2002 World Cup. Um, and it was packed. So I, Busan Ashid is no longer used actually because it's too big for the K-League. I think the capacity can waver anywhere between 50 and 65,000, depending on the seat setup. But it's a pretty big stadium. And for that friendly, it was it was packed. And oddly enough, the very next day, I went to my first K-League game and there was probably like 5,000 people there, whereas there was something like 45, 50,000 the day before. So it was a, it was a stark contrast. But yeah, that, that first game, the international friendly, um, people were well up for it because South Korea prior to the 2002 World Cup had never won a game at a World Cup finals before. Whereas mm. in 2002, they advanced all the way to the semifinals. So people were really impressed by their country. And that was maybe nine months after that had happened. So people were very excited to watch that game. 
were you there just as a, as a fan? Were you there? Did you just give yourself a year to travel, or were you actually working when you were over there? I I was uh, part of the the work that I was doing was writing about football, and I did actually join the Busan supporters group, the Pride of Busan. Um, I went to pretty much every game for the season, home and away, and it was really quite interesting. I went on the uh, the coach with the supporters to the away games, and what blew me away was how cheap it was. So you'd pay. Oh, I don't know, something like 10 quid. That would include your match day ticket and your return bus trip. It was just unbelievably cheap. Now, cost of living and inflation has gone up in Korea since then. It's probably at least double that now, but it's still compared to the UK, really, really cheap. Um, So yeah, I went to pretty much all the games with the supporters, stood with them, did the chance, maybe even introduced one or two poor chants of my own. But uh, I do have a soft spot for Busan. But when I was out there, I actually um, ended up giving my heart, so to speak, to uh, a second division club called Ulsan Mipo Dockyard. Unfortunately, they're no longer in existence. Their uh, benefactor, which is the Hyundai branch that builds ships uh, for the countries around the world, actually, uh, they used to bankroll that club, but they decided to pull the plug. So I don't really have a team that I support per se. I, I have a soft spot for Busan. I watch their games. I also look out for Busan Transport in the third division, the new K3 league. Yeah. Um, and there's also a team in the fourth division called uh, Seoul Noan United. And they're a, a fan-owned club. So they're an IPO or a, like a nonprofit group that runs them. Yeah. Um, and it's an interesting structure for the clubs out there because traditionally the biggest clubs were all bankrolled by the, the table, the, the business conglomerates who mm. for all sorts of reasons, maybe tax and, you know, corporate uh, benevolence and charity or whatever, they would, they would bankroll all the big Kaylee clubs. Since then things have changed a bit and you have a lot more new clubs now that are, uh, funded by the the cities actually, so they're called citizen clubs. Um, ah, so this is what's happening with the army team because we've trying to be getting our head round what's happening and why they're going down all season. So that's the Songju Songmu. That's the military team. So the military team's called Songmu, and they play in the city of Songju. It just happens to be fortuitous that it's a, a bit of a rhyme there. Um, they actually started out in Gwangju in two thousand three, and they played for about nine seasons, I think in Guangzhou and then they left and then Guangzhou, as you mentioned, started the uh, citizen team. And so the idea really with the military team is it can go into a city for five or 10 years and that city can get a feeling for what it's like to have a K-League team. Ah, And at the end of it, they have the option of starting a, uh, a citizen club. So basically that municipality or that city would, would fund the club. Essentially the club as it is now, Sangju Sangmu will cease to exist. The military team will, still be around but I, it, it seems fair to me that if they're going to start over they have to go down to the second division but yeah it, it does kind of soil the uh, relegation battle since there's really you know they're go, they're going down no matter whether they win the league or finish bottom so yeah. there's only that one spot at the very bottom that Incheon's currently in that's really interesting in terms of relegation this year but we'll go back to the normal relegation system next year uh, but it's, sadly it sounds like Songju after about a decade of hosting the military team has decided not to start a citizen club and the, I guess the economy is kind of bad right now. And there's all sorts of arguments that governments shouldn't be bankrolling football teams because they should be putting money into, you know, social services or whatnot. So, but yeah, I think Song Mu, the military team will be in uh, Gimcheon next year. So that's another city in the the Gyeongbuk province, North Gyeongsang province. 
So the book is called Who Ate All the Squid? A play on the old football chant, Who Ate All the Pies? Now, a football pie is a pretty standard snack you can get at a game over here. So my question is, can you actually get a squid to eat at K-League Games? You can, yes. Um, You can get squids that are processed and quick to eat. Sometimes people would put them on the stove burner just to heat them up. It's like a dried squid, basically. Um, it's been gutted and whatnot. So it's just the nice bits left over and it's it's dried. Um, so some people like to put it directly on their stove burner to heat it up because it becomes a softer and it's easier to eat. Um, but you do have a variety where it's just sold in the, in the stands and you can just tear it apart and eat it straight away. People like to dip it in hot sauce or maybe kind of like a creamy sauce, something like that. Um, yeah, there's some interesting snacks out there. Uh, there's something called uh, bandegi, which is silkworm pupae. So before the silkworms are born, they're in a little cocoon, I guess you could call it. Well, not a cocoon, but they're in a, a, a larval stage, I suppose, a pupae stage. So they take these silkworm pupae and they usually boil them in like a sweet um, soy sauce. So it's a common street food. They'll give you a little paper cup and they'll fill it with this boiled silkworm pupae and they'll give you a little toothpick to use as a skewer. And that's actually quite a common food either on the street or at the, some of the football stadiums. Is the, is the silkworm, is the bit, so effectively we're talking like about a baby silkworm, is that in there or is it after it's left it and then they just... It's in there still, yeah. <laughs> but they say insect protein is the, the food of the future for sustainability, so there you go. But, uh, but yeah, I went out there, I started attending uh, Busan matches, uh, went to, I guess, a couple away games, and at that point I decided, okay, this is, this is something I'm really interested in, I'd like to tell the story. So really my book is about uh, following Busan then they were called Busan Icons, they're now Busan Eye Park. So it was about following Busan to all their games home and away for a season. But it, it goes beyond that. There's actually a, a story of that particular season that's quite interesting because a bunch of British footballers went out to South Korea that year. So there was uh, two Scots who became the management team at Busan and they brought out uh, three players from English football. So I was trying to follow how they did, how they fared uh, managing and playing in East Asia. Uh, So I was looking at them on field, but also off field, seeing how they would do living in Asia. Um, And some of them had turbulence in their life and then they went out to South Korea. So being in a different culture, different language, different league on top of some personal issues, it meant for a very uh, interesting year for Busan. So so who were the players? Just as we may remember who they were. So who were the three players that were over playing that you were following around? Yeah, so the manager was uh, Ian Porterfield, just really quickly. Uh, He was the FA Cup hero for Sunderland in 1973 when Sunderland, as a second division club, uh, trying to avoid relegation to the third division, actually won the FA Cup beating Leeds, which is a team playing in uh, Europe at the time. So that was a crazy result. Um, The three players, the the most prominent player was Jamie Kirton. So he played for Norwich City in the Premier League, also played for Bristol Rovers, Reading, QPR, quite a few clubs, actually. Um, He, when he was young, he was playing for the Norwich Academy and Sir Alex Ferguson, not a sir at that time, I suppose, but Ferguson approached Kirton and tried to poach him, bring him to uh, Manchester. So he was offered a four-year pro contract, so two years 
playing in the Manu Academy and two years playing for pro, I suppose. Uh, so had Curitan taken that deal and accepted it, he would have been part of the class of 92, that famous wow. class of Beckham and Giggs and uh, all of them. And the one player that they really didn't have was a, a traditional forward, traditional center forward. And Jamie Curitan was that sort of player. So uh, it's interesting to think what would have happened, but he was quite, settled at Norwich at the time. He was looking around. He noticed that Man U wasn't playing uh, youth players. They were bringing players in on transfer, but most of the youth academy grads at Man U weren't going to the first team. So he was doubtful whether he'd see any playing time. Um, and at the time, Norwich was actually a pretty big club. I think they were third in the Premier League and they were playing in Europe too, actually. He, he sat on the bench yeah. against Inter Milan before he'd play his first pro game. So it's understandable in that context. Um, so he's one of the players, Jamie Curitan, uh, probably best well-known for playing for Norwich City in the Premier League. The other two were Andy Cook. So he has a funny story. He started out playing semi-pro in Wales, uh, in, the, in the old League of Wales. And while he was playing there, he was actually making most of his money working building cow sheds. Wow. <laughs> but, uh, yeah, he started playing in uh, semi-pro in Wales. Uh, he was observed by Burnley and uh, got to play pro with them. And then he transferred to his boyhood dream club, I suppose you could say, uh, Stoke City. Um, and he was with Stoke before going out to South Korea. And then the third player was uh, Jan Olav Yelda, who's Norwegian, but had been playing in England for a while. So he was playing for the biggest team in Norway, Rosenborg. Yeah, he was a peripheral mm. player, but fortuitously for him, he was playing in some really important UEFA Champions League games. So Rosenborg was playing uh, in a group where they were playing against... Um, AC Milan was one of the teams in their group. And actually the small Norwegian minnow team went to AC Milan and beat them at wow. the San Siro. And then in the next round, I believe it was in the knockout round, they held Juventus to a draw in the first leg of that series. So they became heroes essentially in Norway, that Rosenborg team. Um, he wasn't one of the biggest players, the Yelda, but uh, because he had played in both of those games, you had clubs all across Europe coming and knocking on Rosenberg's door, trying to transfer in some of these players. And uh, he almost went to Bari in Italy, but Nottingham Forest actually ended up signing Jan Olaf Yeld. And he helped get them promoted to the Premier League, although it only lasted for one season. So those were the three players who went out there. Jamie Curtin of Norwich, Andy Cook of Burnley and Stoke, and Yelda of Nottingham Forest. So my book basically looks at how well they adapt to living and playing in South Korea. As you mentioned earlier, there were very few British players who play at a high level overseas. And so it was quite interesting to see a whole cluster of them playing for one particular team. And, and without giving too much of the, the drama and the plot twists in the book away, was it an incredible season that year? Busan uh, traditionally were a very strong club in South Korean football. So they would win the K-League roughly one in every four seasons. And in fact, I think it was in 1986, they won the Asian Champions League and then played a game against the African Champions League winner, which was called the Asian Afro cup or something like that. And Busan won that as well. So they were a very strong team traditionally, but what happened was uh, they were owned by the Daewoo corporation or Daewoo, if you like, as I mentioned earlier, the, the early clubs in the K league, they were pretty much all bankrolled almost entirely by these large business corporations. And Busan was bankrolled by Daewoo. But sadly in the late 1990s, there was the Asian financial crisis and quite a few countries in East Asia were hit really hard um, and one of them was South Korea. And actually, Daewoo was the biggest 
Korean business that went bankrupt. And wow. at, at the time, it was the largest corporate bankruptcy in world history. So Busan went from being a massive club in Korean football with lots of money, often winning titles, to basically having no owner. So because the... Uh, the World Cup was coming up in a few years that Korea was co-hosting. They did not want Busan to disappear. They didn't want the club to simply fold. So the arm of uh, Hyundai was twisted, shall we say, to, to take over Busan and to bankroll them. Um, and that's actually not the first time because Ul, uh, Hyundai started funding Ulsan, um, the team that's second place right now in the K-League. But a few years after that, there was a team, you know, Junbuk Motors, they're the team at the top yes. of the K-League. Yeah. They bounced around constantly early in their, uh, their life as a, as a new club. Um, they were owned by a soju manufacturer and a newspaper and a uh, computer manufacturer. And eventually Hyundai had to come in and take over to provide some stability. It's kind of interesting to think that that club almost went bust. They're now the biggest club, arguably in South Korea, Junbuk Motors. So the same thing happened to Busan. They almost went bust, but Hyundai came in and saved them. But unfortunately, because of the financial crisis, all the, the businesses were cut into little pieces. So Hyundai had to figure out which of our little pieces will, uh, will bankroll Busan. So one of the smaller parts of uh, Hyundai ended up bankrolling Busan. So compared to Ulsan and Jungbuk, which are owned by parts of uh, Hyundai that have a lot of money, Busan is owned by a relatively small part of Hyundai. So they have a very small budget compared to what they used to. So basically overnight from the 99 season to the 2000 season, Busan went from a juggernaut in the K-League to a minnow. And it was a wow. real shock to the club, to the fans. They still had quite a few fans turn out for a few years, but yeah, things were getting pretty dire. So the book that I'm writing is the uh, fourth season of Busan being bankrolled by Hyundai um, and it was a it was a season of hope for them because they were moving to this new World Cup stadium, the Ashiad Stadium, and they had brought in Ian Porterfield, the Scottish manager, formerly a Chelsea manager. I think people were inspired by Goose Hiddink taking South Korea all the way to the semifinals of the World Cup in 2002. So Busan were looking for their glamorous European manager. They brought in Ian Porterfield. I don't know if he's glamorous or not, but so really this book is about this, the season of hope and optimism for this juggernaut come minnow in, in Korea. Can they use Ian Porterfield's shrewd tactics and transfer news to turn this club around without having a large budget like the other clubs? Have you had the opportunity to go back just as a, 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 on a holiday or something since you were there for living for the year? Yeah, I've been back a few times. Um, actually got married out there in 2009-10, I suppose. So um, I haven't been to a game at Gudok Stadium yet, unfortunately. So that's where Busan plays now. That's the old yeah. stadium. So they played at Ashiad from 2003 to about 15-16. And then they shifted back to the old ground just because it's a lot closer to the 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 entertainment districts in the downtown, I guess you could say, of uh, of Busan. But yeah, I've been back a few times, um, seeing games like uh, Busan Transport. I saw them play away actually, and uh, there's a lot of new stadiums that have been built that I'm meaning to get to. So uh, Incheon had a new stadium built a few years ago. Daegu had a new stadium open last year, I suppose it was. So it's an exciting time. Gwangju has a new stadium as of mid year this season. It's not. 
a great venue. It's kind of a bit of a Meccano set, but it's a lot better than the the monstrous World Cup ground that they've been playing in since 2003, where it just completely dissipates any atmosphere. So it's a nice, compact, football-specific ground that Guangzhou's playing in. So although aesthetically it's not ideal, it's a, it's a big move up. And it's actually quite sad that all those stadiums were built for the the World Cup, and most of them are no longer uh, in use. I think the ones that uh, are football-specific are still being used, like Ulsan and Seoul yeah. and Junbuk, but all the ones with tracks are now gone. Yeah. I mean, there were some incredible designs, though, both both for the ones in South Korea and Japan. Uh, just And I remember, because I was actually contemplating traveling to Japan for that, that tournament, and it didn't work out at the end. And I think the, the thing that made me really want to go of all the things was one of the stadium had um, the men's toilets had a, like a little pillbox window. So when you went to the urinal, you could still look out on the pitch and see. And I just thought that was genius. And I was like, that would be a way. So you could go have a drink and not miss the game because you could still watch the action while you go to the bathroom. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, there was there were so many grounds built in uh, ahead of the World Cup. Uh, South Korea and Japan were in a bit of a rivalry because they were co-hosting the 2002 World Cup, as you mentioned. So I think FIFA only required both uh, or each of South Korea and Japan to build five stadiums each or build slash renovate, I guess you should say. Uh, but both of them, because of this rivalry, they wanted to outdo each other. They both... Uh, had 10 stadiums each. So there were 20 stadiums used at a World Cup. And I don't think that's been since surpassed. I think FIFA was a bit annoyed actually by that. But uh, Japan renovated a few of their stadiums, but South Korea actually built 10 brand new stadiums for the World Cup. And uh, yeah, unfortunately they were a little big, but it's nice to see new stadiums now. Like Incheon and Daegu, um, it's a lot more intimate. There's a smaller capacity. So it's, it's really helping to improve the league now. Some of the earlier football-specific grounds in South Korea, like uh, Jeonnam and um, I guess maybe, maybe even Changwon, uh, were very minimalist. There were no stands. They were you know, open to the elements. There were, wasn't a lot of acoustics for the, the chance to reverberate. Uh, but yeah, some of the grounds there are interesting. Pohong, I think, is actually the first football-specific ground, and that's almost like a cauldron because it's, mm. it's so steep. The seats are so steep, and it's so high up that it gives you this feeling of being right above the action. Uh, Daejeon's World Cup ground is a bit too big, but it is quite steep as well. And when, it, when it's full for maybe national team games or something, it has a really good atmosphere as well. We're going to be chatting more to Devon about all things Korean football, including what to drink and sing at a game and more after a quick sample of one of our sister podcasts. This is Wrestling with the Champ. In his career, he clocked up over 300 fights and nine speeding tickets, something no one's ever done before. He's won matches with a fractured back, shattered cock and broken heart, all on the same night. Now the concussions are over, he's ready to tell his story. Wrestling with a champ. I'm the 34-time PWF champion, the Ginger Ninja. And if you want a no-holds-barred look at my time in the squared circle, this is the place to come. Either that or meet me outside Wicks with a six-pack and some blunts. Any night's good. I used to say some pretty cool stuff in the ring. Sometimes I'd quote my favourite movies. So if they ever tried to talk to me in the ring, you know, bit of banter, I'd say, let it go. Or, I never treated you like a prostitute. Am I even a real ninja? Of course I am. Look, it's on my driving licence. N-I-G-E-L Ninja. 
You're wrestling with the champ in insert name of town here. Welcome back to the Kaylee Show. My name's Ant, and I'm chatting to Devin Rockcliffe about the book he's written, documenting the year he spent in South Korea following the K-League out there. So let's do the important thing. How can people get their hands on the book? So the book is called Who Ate All the Squid Football Adventures in South Korea. It's now available for pre-order. It's in two formats, paperback and ebook. Um, the paperback, you can buy it pretty much any bookshop in the UK. We'll have it listed on their website. Um, there's actually two um, bookstores, Blackwells and Wordery, and they both offer free shipping, which the Amazon doesn't unless you hit, there's a certain amount you have to hit with Amazon to get free shipping. Sure. So Blackwells and Wordery have it, um, but pretty much every local bookshop will carry it and you can find it already on their websites now if you can search for books on that particular bookstore's website or you can uh, ask and order it in. Um, but yeah, they are available for pre-order now. And the ebook is also available for pre-order. Uh, you can buy the Kindle version on Amazon, or you can buy it from Kobo or Apple Books, depending on where you buy your, your ebooks. And uh, pre-orders are really important for publishers and authors, because if a book gets a lot of pre-orders prior to launch, it really helps the book in terms of rankings. And it helps encourage bookstores not only to buy the book, but to stock it in larger numbers. So if you are thinking about buying it, I would definitely encourage you to consider the pre-order, but both the paperback and the ebook come out on September 28th. And that's with Pitch Publishing. Uh, So far, we've talked about the players and the stadiums. Let's talk about the fans. And from the outside looking in, we've seen a lot of things from other football cultures, which have been adopted and possibly even perfected, which we've loved. But with you having been there in country, and having experienced football in other places like the UK and North America. I'm curious as to if any of the darker sides of football have made their way over there. There was actually a big hooligan problem starting up back in 2003. So the clubs were crying out to hire uh, police to to, uh, do the games, but they weren't allowed to for some reason. I think the government was saying, well, this is your private function, having a football game, so you have to hire security yourself. So they would hire these security goons, but they knew that the, the the assault laws in South Korea were such that had the goons touched any of the hooligans, there probably would have been lawsuits and whatnot. So you had these big formidable dudes in black suits, black belts and Taekwondo, but you know, they would just come over and tap someone politely on the shoulder and say, please don't do that, sir. And that was the, the extent of their security basically. Wow. I mean, of, of all the, of all the great footballing traditions to copy from all over the world, hooliganism is the one I would really wish that people didn't. You know, uh, Yeah. South Korea was terrified actually, as was Japan ahead of the 2002 world cup, that hooliganism, hooliganism was going to run rampant um, during those games that especially the English fans, they were wary of, but everyone was really well behaved and ironically in 2003 it was actually the the domestic football supporters who decided to emulate hooliganism and started to run riot for a little bit before it was cracked down on wow well well i'm guessing they did crack down on it pretty quickly because uh, i haven't seen or heard any evidence that it's a, it's a problem that they have at the minute or for quite a while yeah, luckily the uh, the hooliganism out there dissipated pretty quickly. But uh, I think the trick that they used in South Korea was uh, unlimited booze, basically. So <laughs> you can bring booze into the stands with you. So I remember this one this one fellow uh, wasn't a hooligan per se, but he was this big beefy guy, and he was sitting there, and he, he had uh, 
all these glass bottles of soju, the South Korean liquor lined up and he was just downing them one after another after another. And unfortunately that made him quite aggressive and he stood up and he started challenging these security goons to a fight. He might've known that they weren't going to bite and they were just going to stand around. Maybe it was a bit of a bravado knowing that there wasn't going to be a response, but the, the thing that made him angry, the alcohol was actually what put him to sleep. So after about five minutes, he slunk back down and five minutes later, he was sound asleep for the rest of the game. While we're on that, this is something we've been trying to figure out while we were watching the game at home, uh, is what is what is the thing to drink while you're watching a game? Is there a, is there a national drink to watch with the football or does that vary according to teams or the regions? Or is it just, you know, it depends on, on, on who you are. I mean, what, what would you drink when you would go to the games? Um, the drink I just mentioned, soju, uh, is a pretty popular drink. It's kind of like, uh, I don't know, the Korean equivalent of vodka, something like that. It's not quite as sharp as vodka, but it has its twang to it. Um, so that's a pretty big drink that there's a lot of national pride around soju because it was developed in South Korea. Uh, beers are quite plentiful. Um, back when I was out there, they'd sell beers for about 50 P a can. So you could just stack like eight of them and bring them back to your seat. Um, there's a drink called makoli or rice wine that's becoming a lot more popular. It's having a bit of a, uh, a bit of a boom or a renaissance. Uh, again, national pride's involved with that because that was brewed in South Korea. It's kind of like a slightly sweet, milky taste. It's quite nice, actually. Um, you might not want to have bottle after bottle after bottle of it because it's quite filling. But uh, yeah, that's, that's become quite popular there now. I actually drank a that's just going to make me sound like a korean alcohol hipster but uh there's a variant of makgeolli called the uh, dongdongju which is quite similar it's the milky sweet rice rind but the the dongdongju in particular was very uh, explosive so it's a carbonated drink so if you shake the bottle even slightly and you don't let it sit and let it still if you open it, it will erupt like an absolute volcano. Like you see those, wow. those child's games or the child science fair where they build a paper mache volcano and they fill it with baking soda. And then they, they suddenly dump four liters of white vinegar in it and it just erupts in this column, this pume. Yeah. The Dong Dong was like that. I remember I went to this uh, fire Nord versus Busan friendly and I had shaken my bottle of Dong Dong and I hadn't realized it and then opened the cap and then just, and I think there was like a, four or five row spot or stain where uh, my, my drink had erupted. It was, it's probably still sticky there to this day. Wow. It sounds like a, a great drink to have to celebrate with. Uh, it, it was good fun. Yeah. I mean, it was a cheap drink. You could buy it for less than a pound a bottle. Um, it didn't last very long. It was kind of like a locally brewed sort of a drink, but yeah, there's a lot of, a lot of good alcohol out there, but uh, the tins are quite popular because they last a long time. And I suppose the glass soju bottles as well. And that's what is quite surprising to a lot of people that you can buy glass bottles. They might've shifted to pl plastic, I should say, but yeah, back in the day, they would be glass bottles. And if the fans weren't happy, you might see some of those glass bottles rain down on the pitch. Unfortunately. Wow. <laughs> Yeah, something tells me we're not going to get glass bottles allowed in the Premier League, at least for a little while. I, I think most people would much rather sing a song at players rather than throw things at them. So on that, do you think you could teach us a chant that we could sing during a game? Um, I'm slightly tone deaf, so I don't think your listeners want me to break into song. Well, maybe I could try. Well, there's... I'll, I'll join you. I'll join you. <laughs> okay, well, I'll, I'll embarrass myself here. So... 
One of the big chants in uh, 2002 for the national team was uh, Pilsung Korea. So like winning Korea. Pilsung Korea. Pilsung Korea. Yeah. Korea. So we'll go, oh, Pilsung Korea. Ta -ta. Oh, Pilsung Korea. Ta -ta. Oh, Pilsung Korea. Oh, ole, ole. Hey, hey, hey. I like that. And is that just a kind of give the team a bit of a lift or is that after you've scored? When would that kind of song pop into the game? Probably to give a lift. I mean, uh, the terrace culture in the UK is a lot more spontaneous. So you don't have a capo like you would in Europe or Asia or South America. So usually it's just up to any individual when they feel like it to start a chant. So sometimes if the team's doing well, you'd have a celebratory chant. Or maybe if the team's not doing well, someone would try and lift the teams, but you're not constantly chanting. Whereas the culture in South Korea is more about having a capo, having almost like a script. Some teams actually have like a, a list of songs or chants that they would go through. So they, as soon as there's kickoff, they break into chant number one, then there's right. chant number two, then there's chant number three, and they just cycle through it. It's fascinating to me how like they, they, it's the same but it's also different. Uh, I, again, thinking about the, the people that go to watch the game, the fans' experience, um, when they're not watching games, are, are they playing football? I'm just wondering if outside the K-League, is there anything like the, the grassroots scene that we have in the UK? Yeah, um, but what's nice about South Korean football is it's going in the opposite direction, that traditionally its club pyramid has been very top-heavy. There hasn't been many semi-pro and amateur clubs. Um, so in South Korea, there, there used to be a league called the Korea National League um, that was recently the third division, and that's actually merged into the K3 League. So now you have a mix of these semi-pro, maybe almost pro teams playing with these amateur teams that are now coming up and there's a it's a real boom period for lower division football in south korea um the kfa the korean football association recently started amateur leagues in an organized way so a, a k5 league a k6 league a k7 league so unfortunately there's no promotion and relegation between pro semi-pro and amateur there's those three silos mm -hmm. but within each silo there is promotion and relegation and uh, it's really great to see uh, especially amateur clubs popping up and some of them some of the bigger ones looking for spectators trying to become spectator oriented clubs uh, i think sadly they're in a situation like canada where they don't have their own ground per se but it is good to see um that lower level culture starting to develop in south korea the the pyramid starting to fill out a bit and get more bottom heavy as it should be and that's really exciting for the future once they do link up promotion and relegation you see uh Clubs like Gimhae in the K3 league doing very well. They could easily, I think, handle life in the in the K2 or the K League 2, I should say. So a lot of us who have been watching Korean football for a long time are really crossing our fingers and hoping that works. But it's going to be really tricky because uh, the K League is actually an American-style franchise-based league. So all the clubs had to pay money to join the K League. So I remember in 2006, they wanted more clubs in the K League. So they said to the old second division works team league, if you win the league, you can join the K-League. So they won their league and they were going to go up to the K-League and they were presented with a bill. So here's your $1 wow. million dollar franchise invoice. Wow. Thanks very much. So the club said, yeah, no thanks, mate, and walked. So that was the early attempt at, at promotion uh, into the K-League and that didn't work because of that. So, you know, in, in English football, as you mentioned, the TV rights are worth so much that you want to go up just to get that TV revenue, whereas that doesn't really exist to any significant degree in South Korea. So they're going to have to figure out what to do, because, I mean, if they just link up the 
K3 league with the K league and there's a promotion, the K league clubs are going to say, well, hang on a minute, mate. We've paid a million dollars us to be in this league. How come this Johnny come lately just gets to come up through promotion. So there's all sorts of politics that needs to go on, but hopefully I don't know if the KFA or the K league needs to pay all these clubs to dissolve the franchise structure, but that is in the plan to have a, a complete promotion and a relegation. And there are, as I said, there's a lot of small clubs coming up at the grassroots level. So it is kind of a boom time, but sadly most of them don't have their own grounds, but it is a interesting moment right now in South Korean football history. So we've already talked about foreign players and managers that have come over to the K-League to help it develop. Um, In the UK right now, there's a couple of big clubs that have appointed first-time managers that are former players. Is that something that's happening in Korea as well? Uh, But There's some interesting former famous players who have become managers. So at uh, Sungnam, you have Kim Nam-il who's the new manager. So he was part of the the 2002 World Cup and he became a big celebrity. And it's funny, after the 2002 World Cup, the idols, pop culture idols in South Korea shifted from K-pop stars to, to a certain degree, footballers. So footballers became big celebrities almost overnight after the 2002 World Cup. And Kim Nam-il actually had the biggest following of any of the players and he was not wow. the best looking player and he was not the best player in terms of um, playing ability. But um, uh, people really liked Kim Nam-il because he was very rebellious. So in South Korean society, you have to respect your elders and be polite and da 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 He was always a cheeky bugger. So <clears throat> I remember when uh, Goose Hiddink, the former Chelsea manager, the Dutch guy came in as a manager, he wanted to shake up the system and he said, okay, no more seniority system. Uh, you treat all of each other as players, as equals. You don't speak more polite to players who are older than you. You don't give possession to a player just because they're older than you. You're all equals now. So Kim Namil was really cheeky. And he, he was the, one of the youngest players in that team, the 2002 World Cup squad. So he turned to the oldest player and he said, hey, let's go eat in a really informal, impolite language. Whole team cracked up. So people like his rebelliousness and he became almost like a... Uh, I don't know. People, the, the women all fancied him because he was such a cheeky bugger. So women right. would turn up at games where Kim Nam-il was playing with Jan Nam with signs that would say, hey, Kim Nam-il, let's only have three children. Or, hey, Nam-il, turn out the lights. Or something like really kind of provocative signs. So anyway, he was a big famous icon. He's now the Sung Nam manager. It's his first season in charge of Sung Nam. So it's going to be interesting to see how he... And it's, so I, I've, I've adopted Sung Nam as a team and they've really sort of not been performing as well as, as they looked like in preseason and the predictions. There's been uh, some disappointing results. Is that, is, is that down to the playing staff or just... I think budget more than anything, which, yeah, it does affect the playing staff. Sungnam in the 90s and 2000s were the biggest club in South mm-hmm. Korea and won a lot of titles. Since then, they've almost done a Busan by becoming a minnow. So they've become a, uh, a citizen team paid for by their government. So they used to be bankrolled by a cult The Moonies. Yes, yeah, the yeah, Moonies. Yeah. Yes, yes, yes. So... Since then, uh, they've become a citizen team, so their budget is much smaller. So I would compare Sungnam to a team like West Brom or Sunderland or Stoke. They're kind of a yo-yo team that goes okay. up and down. So they tend to struggle uh, staying in the top flight. So, so because I, I knew that they'd been bought by the city, but I didn't realize this this was a, an actual thing within the Korean football culture. So effectively, now the footballers are almost like that they're employees of the council in the same way that the, the people that take the rubbish out, the people that give the, the fines for car parking. So they're, they're, they're government staff, effectively. 
Essentially, yeah. The the chairman of these uh, citizen clubs are basically the mayors of the cities that own them. Wow. So usually, usually in practice, you would have an appointee who would be the CEO of the club. But yeah, technically, the the mayors of these cities of these citizen clubs are the are the chairman. So yeah, Kim Namil. To go back to your question, sorry, Kim Namil was one to watch because he was a big star uh, as the new manager of Songnam. Uh, down in the second division, there's Gyeongnam FC. They are based in Changwon, but they play in other Gyeongnam cities as well. And uh, their manager is Sol Gi-hyun. So Sol Gi-hyun played in England for Fulham, Reading, and I believe it was Wolves was his first club out in England. Um, so he came back to Korea and he did his coaching badges and started managing at the university level. And he took one of his teams to uh, the U-League final in 2015, I think it was. So Gyeongnam decided to poach him for this season. So he's had a really rocky start. Um, I'm a bit of a critic of his appointment, but it'll be interesting to watch and see how he does. Gyeongnam seemed to have improved in recent games. So he's, he's one to watch as well, I would say. But uh, yeah, there, there seems to be a bit of a managerial merry-go-round starting up in Korean football that thankfully wasn't there in the past, but seems like patience for managers is getting less and less and you're starting to see more and more famous players becoming managers rather than perhaps the best managers at the lower league level. So it's a bit of a shame. I think there's a lot of good managers at the U league level who could be tapped, but yeah, it'll be interesting to see how Sol Gi-hyun does at, uh, at uh, Gyeongnam FC. Um, so those are probably my two to keep an eye on, Kim Nam-il and Sol Gi-hyun. Devon, thank you so much for your time. It's been a real pleasure and an education as well for me and hopefully for, for everybody else listening. Once again, uh, we'll mention where people can get hold of the book, but also where they can follow you and because uh, I'm sure like like myself, there'll be other people that'll be engaged and want to get more into your writing. I know you're quite active on Twitter, but if there's anywhere else people can check out your other writing, please share that with us. Okay, so again, the book is called Who Ate All the Squid? Football Adventures in South Korea, published by Pitch Publishing in the UK, uh, available in paperback and ebook. It launches on September 28th, but it's now available for pre-order and pre-orders are always greatly appreciated by both publishers and authors. Uh, in terms of me, you can follow me on Twitter at who ate the squid is the username there. I uh, do write about mostly Canadian politics, but also some British, New Zealand and Australian politics at Devon Rowcliffe. So Rowcliffe is R O W C L I F F E. Devon is spelt like the County. I'm most active. If you're most interested in Korean football at uh, who ate the squid on Twitter. Uh, Devon, once again, thanks very much. And if you uh, take the step to turning it into an audio book, please call on us and we'll give you a hand. <laughs> Will do. Thanks very much for having me, Anthony. That's it for this episode of the K-League Show. Thanks once again to my guest today, Devon Rowcliffe. My name's Ant and I'll be back with Jim and Azzy for the usual madness next time.